welcome to the Best Player Wins podcast, where we believe that winning is winning, no matter by how little or by how much. We are your hosts. I am Nate Endries. I'm Jake Thiemer. <laughs> Jake, it's been a while, obviously. We uh, a little shaky on the intro. I think maybe last year I usually said both of our names, and I forget uh, because Eddie yeah, and I. Eddie, yeah. Yeah, when, when Eddie and I do the football podcast, he'll jump in to introduce himself. Obviously, Jake and I are rusty. It's been over six months, I think, at this point since we recorded the last Fantasy Baseball podcast episode. So welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, Jake. Uh, it's great to be back. I remember being a little burnt out at the end of last season, but I am totally feeling ready, refreshed this year. Hopefully, you're feeling the same. Yeah, I think part of the burnout was uh, we didn't have anything to play for. So uh, just watching other teams succeed and being sad that you're not. Uh, it's like it's like you're looking out the window at the kids playing and just being like, wish I was still out there. But hey, yeah. everybody's outside playing at this point right now. So yeah, we were both kind of slowly dying inside, getting eliminated kind of early from the playoffs. Um, but we're back. We're ready to compete again. We're ready to talk about baseball with some enthusiasm again. And we're not really going to do a long intro into our league opening episode here. We're pretty much just going to jump right into it with our draft preview. Uh, So such as we did last year, Jake, the first thing that I wanted to touch on is the effects of the players that are being kept on how you think the draft will play out. So the first question that I have, and I'll let you kick us off, Jake, is in terms of availability, and when, I'm, when I say that, I'm talking about how many players are left versus how many teams are already set at a certain position, which position would you say is the most scarce heading into our draft next Sunday? Uh, pitching is going to get pushed up, as it always does, but the most scarce position is third base, and that's just... I think only four teams have third base eligible players. Uh, It's sort of already a thin position to begin with. And now you have a report that Manny Machado is battling back injuries, features a lot of kind of rebound candidates that have been early round staples in the past, but uh, I don't have a ton of confidence in Alex Bregman, Nolan Arenado or Anthony Rendon to have a major bounce back season. And those are guys that we've counted on as, kind of pillars at the position in the past. Uh, the depth at the position isn't great, really, unless there are some rebounds with those guys. If there's not, it's really going to be pretty middling. Uh, really, the reality here is that multiple people are likely going to get stuck with a third baseman that you don't want. I know that for a lot of my redrafts, I've always kind of gone into, I'm going into them with the thought that I don't want to, I don't want to be the guy that has to start like DJ LeMahieu at third base, but the reality is for this draft, we're going to have like two or three people that are going to be like, I are going to go into the draft thinking, I don't want to be the guy that starts some schmuck at third base, but it's going to happen. This one was a tough call uh, for me between the two corner infield spots and shortstop. I originally thought shortstop because there are truly only four quality shortstops available in the draft as things currently stand. But I ended up backing off of that pick 
after seeing that nine of our 12 teams are carrying a shortstop into the draft as a keeper. So then I looked at first base because seven of what I consider to be the top 12, you know, eligible at the position options are being kept by only five of our 12 teams. So two of those five teams are actually keeping two first eligible, two first base eligible players. But then when I checked out the pool of available first baseman, I realized it's a very rich position with quality options that I would personally be comfortable starting even beyond just the top 12 guys. Um, so that brought me to my ultimate decision, which is agreeing with you, Jake, that it is third base. That is the scarcest position. And at first glance, you mentioned that there are only four teams keeping a third base eligible player. So there really aren't many taken off the board, kind of off the top. But you already touched on this. There's only a handful of very good options at the position, like Jose Ramirez, Manny Machado, who he, I, to your point that he's dealing with back soreness, he is, or he was back in the lineup yesterday. So he is already kind of past that, or at least you hope that he is. There's also Alex Bregman, Nolan Arenado, you said Anthony Rendon. There's a few pretty good options, but again, some of the guys on the back half of that handful of third basemen that I named, you're hoping for a bounce back for, like you brought up. The problem with third base is that unlike its corner infield opposite, this position absolutely falls off a cliff after the top 12 options. And even in those top 12, you're not necessarily confident that you're getting a stud that you're you're going to be comfortable running out for the entire season. So keep in mind that at least five of those options, keeper or not, are multi-eligible players. So when you consider that teams may not even be drafting or keeping these guys with the intention to start them at third base full-time, the scarcity becomes even more dramatic since more than 12 are you know, probably going to be drafted. So I agree with you, Jake. Third base is definitely my pick for the scarcest position heading into the draft. We're starting off the season strong, doing what we do best, which is agreeing on something that we had not discussed before we come live here on the episode. Second question that I have um, for our draft preview segment here. Based on the amount of hitters being kept, which is 30 out of the total 53 pre-expansion draft, Versus the amount of pitchers being kept, which on the flip side is 23 of those 53 guys. You expect the first two to three rounds to be more hitter focused than any of the past few drafts due to the increased availability of pitching. So another way to say that, because there are so many top pitchers available, do you think that'll you know make teams more patient about drafting starting pitching early? Uh, not really. Um I don't think it'll be quite as pitcher focused as it has been in the past, but it's going to be pretty close to what we just, as a league, we just, we just like our starting pitchers. And, uh, but I think this time around, it actually might be, might be a little more justifiable to take a starting pitcher early. Uh, I, I don't see any Zach, please Zach types. And that would be coming off the board early this time around. I think that has to do with, um, we don't have the highest end pitchers. Uh, I think last year, some of the higher end guys, Shane Bieber, Garrett Cole, Jacob DeGrom, uh, Trevor Bauer were all being kept. So the high, the pitchers at the highest end of the spectrum were all off the board. So guys, so the next 
tier was being pushed up when they probably shouldn't have been. That's not the case this year. The highest end guys are mostly available. So that's why I'm thinking that we're still going to be chasing pitchers early, but it might be a little more justifiable this year than in, than in the past. Yeah. Again, I'm going to echo your sentiment because it's, I, I share the same thought. I don't really expect it to be any different. My thought is that, sure, you'd think that those numbers that I mentioned, 30 hitters versus 23 pitchers being kept, again, those are pre-expansion draft numbers. They, those numbers would provide comfort to teams to build a higher floor early in the draft by taking offense, but that's just looking at the surface level. I think that... A higher number of pitchers being available obviously means that there are a higher number of starting lineup pitcher spots to fill around the league. And I think that that notion of greater need is going to offset the greater availability of pitching. And therefore, we're going to see the same proportion of hitters and pitchers drafted in the first few rounds as we typically see, which I'm just going anecdotal here. I didn't actually pull up any draft recaps. I think it's usually close to 50-50. Maybe it's like 60-40 in hitters' favor, but it is very close. I I think we see quite a few pitchers taken early. I don't really expect that to change this year. Yeah, I think that's going to be to the advantage of some of the teams that have already stocked up on pitchers too because they're going to be able to take those hitter values that fall. I guess I'm thinking like teams that already have multiple pitchers being kept and I believe Nick has almost an entire rotation set already. And uh, I think Courtney's most of the way there, but they should be at more of an advantage because they're not going to have to reach for a pitcher that maybe isn't as good a value as a hitter because they don't have to fear that they're going to be missing out on the higher end pitchers since they've already kept quite a few. Yeah. Nick has four starting pitchers plus Shohei Otani. Courtney has four starting pitchers as well, but her fifth keeper is Blake Trinan. So, yeah, you're right. They're both almost full in in terms of their starting rotation already going into the draft. It sounds to me, based on your opinion there, that we actually might differ for the first time for this next question. I will lead us off this time. The question is, which manager in the league do you think is in the best position entering the draft based on keepers. So again, well, I'll give you, I'm, I'm going to give you my, we're probably not going to disagree. <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. Now go ahead. I'm going to preface this explanation by saying that I always prefer quality first and foremost. Like I would never look at positional makeup of keepers over the quality of the keepers themselves. However, since more teams than not across our league have what I consider to be quality sets of keepers entering the draft, the differentiator thereafter for me becomes balance, or to put it another way, and this is going to sound funny, but non-discriminatory draft capital. So in the context of fantasy baseball, uh, allow me to explain with two examples on opposite ends of the spectrum. So my brother Nick is keeping, like we just mentioned so far, four starting pitchers and only one hitter in Shohei Otani. And by the way, that hitter can only be started in the utility spot on offense. So while I think Nick has some of the best keepers individually, his pool is not really going to be doing him any favors as an aggregate group because he doesn't have much liberty in the draft to kind of just take any hitter or pitcher he wants based on value. If he's watching the board unfold in a way that he just can't believe that that number one player 
on his board at the time, who let's just say is a first base only eligible player, is falling to him. He can't take that guy with much confidence if he also happened to draft a first base only eligible player earlier in the draft because he can't start those two first basemen plus Shohei Otani. We don't have more than one utility spot. So it's going to be hard to justify um, you know, taking a player like that. And he also can't take, you know, in the same way, he only has one starting pitcher spot to fill. So it's going to be hard to justify taking pitching value on multiple occasions early in the draft, even if he otherwise thinks that the value is too good to pass up. So long story short, he has... You know, he has to somewhat what I call quote unquote discriminate against certain positions because he doesn't have much lineup flexibility entering the draft. Now let's go on the flip side. Let's use a team like Sam's to outline the benefits of the opposite scenario. Not only is Sam's pool balanced with two hitters and three pitchers, but one of those hitters has multi eligibility. And by the way, at two of the three positions that I picked for the scarcest in Austin Riley, this balanced keeper pool really allows him to kind of play the board as it falls to him without any kind of inherent hindrance based on the players that he already has as keepers. I bring up Sam's team in particular because his is the only roster in the league other than mine that is entering the keeper expansion draft with multiple hitters and multiple pitchers. Nobody else besides the two of us have multiple keepers on both ends heading into Friday. And the reason why I haven't actually said my pick yet, here it is. The reason why I give my keeper pool the slight edge is that all of my guys can contribute from day one, whereas Sam really only has two starting pitcher spots filled off the rip since Chris Sale is going to be out until late May with a broken rib. So I think I'm, I am actually in the best position entering the draft. Who do you have here, Jake? Uh, I have Sam here. Um, uh, looking back at where my teams have been successful in the past and what the keeper pools looked like. And it's, it's been multiple hitters and pitchers, like you were saying, I do think that that provides a lot of flexibility and that's always a good idea to have that where you're not at the mercy of who you already have. Uh, but also he has all of his early picks and when you're going to build a team, that's really going to be a contender from day one it's it's very obvious like that's the way to do it you have all your you have your early picks and you're able to supplement them with all of these stars that you're keeping at discounts uh i also did i I guess i could say this is sort of in the beta phase i wasn't really happy with how it turned out so that's why i wasn't going to go into a lot more detail on it but i was trying to do i don't want i don't know if i want to call it a metric or something but i basically i was working on over the offseason something that we could try to quantify keeper value versus where they're picked in the draft. And uh, basically it's your, your draft slot. Like if you treat it like an auction, your draft slot has a cost to has a cost. And based on how they perform, your player will return a certain amount of value. So basically I I test this last year, the best, um, the best keepers were, it, it turned out okay. Burns and Rodon were the best, were the, were at the top. It doesn't deal with playing time real well. So I, that was one thing I wasn't real happy about. But in any long story short, uh, Sam's keeper pool was, was the best in this. And that basically means I see his keeper pool returning the most value based on where he's drafting his play, where these players slot in in the draft. Actually, I will give the honorary 
it was actually pretty close. I, I wasn't expecting it to be this close, but uh, Jordan's pool was right behind him in terms of uh, draft value based on who he's keeping, which I, I know Jordan's keeping all hitters, so it's not going to be uh, – he's kind of locked in a little bit and ended up being a little more pitching heavy, but I, I just thought that was interesting that he finished so close behind. But, yeah, I, I, I think Sam is in the best position. He has all his early picks, uh, and he's he's able to do basically whatever he wants, take best player available early. Yeah, and I like the honorable mention of Jordan because I actually love the players that Jordan is keeping and at the value. I just kind of uh I was kind of narrowing based on criteria, but I did love I did love Jordan's team as well or his pool of keepers. So Jake's pick is Sam, who was my second place. I think that was pretty clear in my explanation, but my pick was my team. Probably showing a little bias there. That's a great point that you bring up with having all of your early picks. I do not have any picks from round three through the end of round seven. That is certainly a factor. Probably should have dinged my keeper pool a little bit more accordingly, but glad we were able to finally disagree (laughs) on the first point of the episode. I guess I could start, I could speak a little bit from experience with that because of last year. I don't know if everybody remembers, I didn't have my first actual pick in the draft was round six. I don't think anybody was going to argue that probably my pool had the most talent. I had Jacob DeGrom, uh, Garrett Cole, and Vlad as three of my picks. I don't think anybody's going to argue that's probably the most, three of the most talented players in the draft, but they were all early picks. So I'm even going to say when I ran them through this metric that I have, none of them really returned a whole lot of surplus value just because they were picked so early. That draft slot comes at a high cost. So even though I had some of the more talented players, the fact that I didn't have any early picks really hurt me. And I, I do, even though the draft pool is thinner, you're not going to get as, which by that meaning, you're not going to get as much, uh, as much value out of those early picks as you otherwise would in a redraft league. Those early picks still matter. They can still hurt you. Uh, a bust early is, can still sink you there. So I, I don't I think at the early, like I wasn't able to fill a lot of holes on my roster because uh, the pool thins out late, thins out later. I wasn't really able to, to fill the, the holes on my roster later in the draft, just because I, the players weren't there. Like, I don't know if anybody remembers my other two, two of my outfielders were Mike Yastrzemski and Aaron Hicks coming out of the draft. And yeah. that's just because the, the pool thins so quickly and I didn't, but if I was in Sam's position, I could have grabbed outfield, a good outfielder earlier. He has all his early picks. He can do whatever he wants. I, I just think we, the early picks matter a whole lot. I, and last year really did help me see that. Yeah, I was actually going to ask if your kind of keeper value aggregator took into account that, you know, say I'm keeping, let's, I'm just using an example that I'm looking at on my screen here. I'm keeping Xander Bogarts in the third round. That's probably where he would go in a redraft league. But considering that there's already fat skimmed off the top of the available player pool, due to players like Corbin Burns, Corey Seager, um, Shohei Otani, Shane Bieber being kept you know, further back of the third round, that makes getting a player who would normally go in the third round 
more valuable than it would normally be to kind of get them at their typical ADP because the rest of the draft pool is already thinner. The fat is not there. It's taken off the top. So do you like have something factored into your kind of routine that would account for that? Yeah. So the basic idea, I guess, to explain it, you take out the keepers, you put in their costs. So I used, uh, like a budget for, I only did this for convenience because I can use, and I can use the fan tracks auction calculator and it just makes everything really nice. I, so it's a two, I gave every team a $260 budget, like fake budget. And you, I have the amount of picks and then you enter in the keepers at, at whatever draft pick they are. You convert it to um, whatever that slot cost is. I don't remember exactly off the top of my head. I had this all figured out or so I thought. Mm. Uh, but you enter in that cost and then it'll, t- it'll calculate the rest of the field based on, uh, who's available. So it, it's Got not, it. it's factoring in the key, the, the players that are in the player pool. Got it. And then you apply that to the, the draft cost and add and subtract to the value. And that's, that's what you have. Like I said, I'm not, it's not perfect. It, mm-hmm. It's, it is complete. Uh, it's completely projection based. It's like, I don't those are kind of a median median projection average projection for each mm-hmm. player. It's not really going to account for upsides like last year. Uh, it, it, Vladimir Guerrero, I don't think rated so well. I didn't have this metric last year, but I'm, I'm just thinking back to what the projections were. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't have rated so well just because he, his projection wasn't great, but you know, he, he knew he had that upside. So maybe it's worth it. I guess I'm kind of going off into a tangent on pro- using projections versus upside for draft value, but yeah, this is completely projection based. I guess is my point. So it's not a perfect thing. I just was curious about it and was trying was trying to build something that we could use to maybe quantify. Yeah, uh, keeper value. And honestly, another consideration to make with that, I don't I don't know necessarily what to call it a routine. I guess that you built is maybe the peak usefulness of it isn't projecting what the value is. You know what where the value is going to lie this year, maybe it's looking at how it played out last year and just kind of taking insights from that and applying them to the way that you draft this year, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, that's actually what I did while I was trying to build it to see if it looked, because like I, I can know, I know just eyeballing like what's a good keeper and what's not. So the way that I was trying to build and tweak it was I kind of used last year as my, I guess like my test set. I know that's not, that's not technically what that is, but I, I, I used the, I used last year's actual stats and ran mm. those in the auction calculator and ran that up against my, and like the keepers that we had last year. Uh, I went through our whole draft and put, actually put the, um, it wasn't even the keepers. It was just every player in the draft. I put what their, what their call, what the draft slot cost was up against, uh, what they, how they did. And you could, I, I just wanted to see if the results looked right. And I, I, I was happy with how it went. Like I said, it's not, it's not perfect. But I was not happy really with how the playing time played out. Cause it really, I, I haven't figured out how to, how exactly I want to adjust for that, but overall, I think it was okay. And it was, it, it's all right to use on projections, just kind of keeping in mind that their projections are not, those aren't actual stats. And it's sort of like the median outcome for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't want to 
I mean, obviously you wouldn't give it up if you plan to use it in, you know, as an instrumental piece of your drafting strategy, but maybe say after the draft, you can release like past results. So like 2021, what the values for all of the keepers ended up shaking out to be, or if you're not comfortable even releasing that information as a recent indicator of, of the outputs of what you built, maybe next year you release the results of the 2021 season. So you're kind of releasing results on a one season lag. Like, I think that would be cool to look at. Obviously, no, I have no problem. I, I have no problem releasing it. I can send it out in an email to everybody, but I, I just wasn't happy with, how it to, with the final product. I, w- I would have sent it out earlier because I was actually thinking about including it in the league history document to see if gotcha. I could like, ret- retroactively see who the keepers were. I was thinking about putting it on like the three year keeper chart to see like, okay, how much value this guy have over the span. Yeah. Yeah. But I just, I wasn't thrilled with how the final product was just in terms of playing time. But I mean, I can, sure. I can send it out. It's not just keep that in mind. It's not, uh, we're, it's not we're, in like beta, we're in like the beta phase. <laughs> sure. Hey, it, it all has to start somewhere. All starts with an idea. Um, okay. Our second segment, it is called overreaction or not spring training edition so we have or i should say i wrote five kind of statements or headlines whatever you want to categorize them as based on what we have seen or what we have heard during spring training so far jake and i are going to argue why or why not this is an overreaction so first one this is a guy that we have talked about as a group a few times already it is Cody Bellinger should not be drafted in the first dozen rounds of our live draft, even post keeper purge. Big, is this an overreaction or not? Uh, this is a really good line because he should probably go around this point, but I'm going to say it's an overreaction, even though he was straight garbage last year. Like, it's tough to see a player go from MVP candidate to actually being completely unusable, but it happened. I, didn't think it would happen, but he's just an absolute, he's just a mechanical mess. And I know that he's, he tweaks his swing all the time and it's just annoying. He showed up after his MVP season. He's like, I tweaked my swing. I wasn't happy with this. Well, that didn't help at all. Anyways, I'm not sugarcoating what he did last year, but I think the upside here is what would make this worth it. Just based on who's kind of going in this range. Uh, I'm going to use ADP and my pick. I know that's not, gospel or anything but just based on my my pick in the 13th round is pick 146 the other outfielders that are going in that range based on adp are trent grisham lourdes guriel and chris taylor bellinger has much higher upside on any of them than any of those guys uh i think at that point in the draft you could probably swap over to looking for upside and the cost of that pick it's not really that high. So if he bombs again, like you could probably find a replacement. I don't know. I just, he has enough upside at that point. It's probably worth it. If he's, if he was being drafted any earlier than that, then you kind of have to worry that he, he's going to bomb and it's actually going to hurt your team. So you're kind of softly suggesting that this is an overreaction. Yeah, I, I get, I think it's, it's a good line. Like anywhere from like, from, the 11th to the the 14th or so is I think a good spot for him. I'm going to go with that. This is not an overreaction. 
This guy is absolutely lost at the plate. Last year, it was you know I thought that it was a fair justification to blame his struggles on injuries since he had a broken leg at one point. He was coming off of a major shoulder surgery, which Jake, you can speak to as a former baseball player who had to get shoulder surgery. I'm sure that that kind of injury can get to the point of being career threatening. You know, yeah. Now it's there's not, a lot of there's a lot of tiny parts in the shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> Not fun. I mean, it, it's scary for Tatis. I mean, it looks. It, luckily, he's young, um, so we hope that there's nothing major that's going to hinder him in the future. But Cody Bellinger, I think now he's fully healthy, at least physically speaking. But mentally, it is a totally different story. The guy just completely forgot how to hit. There's literally no other way to say it. He forgot how to hit the ball. At the time of preparing this segment. Cody Bellinger had struck out 14 times in 19 spring training at bats. For those keeping score at home, that is just shy of a 74% strikeout rate, which to put it lightly is not great folks. The other consideration just beyond his on field red flags for me is the roster dilemma that he creates. If or really when he sucks, if you draft him and he doesn't figure it out, you absolutely cannot start that crater in your lineup, former MVP or not. So the question that the person who eventually drafts him is going to have to ask themselves is how long of a leash do you give this guy? Is the former MVP accolade going to be hard for you to let go of in terms of dropping him to the waiver wire? If so, are you willing to let yourself miss the waiver wire breakouts like a Cedric Mullins or a Logan Webb because you just can't bring yourself to drop a guy with that big of a name? Obviously, you can see where I stand on his value, so all that brings me to the conclusion that he is not worth a pick in the first 12 rounds of the draft, even with a limited pool of players based on you know later keepers, because the earlier you draft him, the harder, in my opinion, that it will be to justify moving on from him if or really when he sucks, because I just don't see him being a good player um, in April at all. If he figures it out later in the season... You know, maybe I can see that, but he's not going to magically show up on opening day and, and be an advantageous player after striking out three of every four at bats during spring training against weaker pitching. Yeah, I mean, we saw this happen with uh, Travis Shaw a couple of years ago, too, where he just looked like he just forgot how to hit in spring training and kind of carried over to the season. So it's, it's not unprecedented, but especially with somebody like Cody Bellinger who was having these problems last year and was just dreadful. All right. Uh, number two, Mike Clevenger and his 2.94 ERA over 489 and a third innings pitched since 2017 will pick up right where he left off a year and a half ago, pitching like a SP2 on a per start basis in 2022. So that is a top 24 starting pitcher on a per start basis. Jake, is this an overreaction or not? I think this is a slight overreaction because uh, while I am a big Mike Clevenger fan um, and I do think he'll be good this year, uh, we haven't really seen him be good in quite some time. Uh, last time we saw him was actually the 2020 season and uh, his velocity was down. He had a 470 XERA and a sub nine case per nine. Uh, I I guess there was he had he had a start against some minor leaguers earlier in the I think like last week sometime 
Although I don't know if you saw his start today. Uh, he did not look very good. I did not see the velocity readings because it was not on TV, but he gave up eight runs in less than two innings and a couple home runs. That's results usually aren't important, but that's not exactly a super encouraging sign. I think that it's probably unfair to expect him to pitch like a, like an SP two after not having done so in a while. Uh, he's also just coming off coming off Tommy John surgery. I don't think that the Padres will have any reason to limit him, but I mean, I, I don't think expecting a lot of innings is very wise. Uh, I would say that I'd probably be uncomfortable with him if he was any higher than maybe my, I, I would prefer him as a high upside SP four, I guess. I'd probably be uncomfortable if he was my SP three or above the talent. that He's a great talent, I think, but it's been a while since we've seen him be at that elite level. And he's just coming off of a significant injury. Also his mechanics are horrendous and they do tend to stress his elbow and shoulder area more than another pitcher would. So he is at a higher risk of re-injury just because his pitching motion is so violent. You don't like the uh, little foot shuffle that he does before his windup? No, his mechanics are horrible. <laughs> I, uh, I disagree again, Jake. I don't think that this is an overreaction for two reasons. Current health and track record. So Mike Clevenger said in an interview early this spring that he is the health or he, should, he feels the healthiest that he ever has felt in his career. And he definitely should be feeling that way after being close to a year and a half removed from Tommy John surgery. You mentioned the last time we saw him was 2020. He ended up getting the surgery in September 2020, so it has now been I think close to 18 months since he, you know, got the surgery initially. I'm pretty confident in his health based on his, again, I wrote this, don't, don't crucify me, Jake. I wrote this yesterday before his start today. I wrote that I'm pretty confident in his health based on the spring turn, the spring training returns so far with Padres beat writer, Kevin AC reporting quote, Mike Clevenger's first time on the mound in a game setting could hardly have gone better. Three perfect innings in 41 pitches against White Sox minor leaguers. He was at 94 to 95 miles per hour throughout. He threw all of his pitches. He even got four outs in the first inning. He was so efficient, end quote. Now, granted, that performance was against minor leaguers, uh, but that brings me to my second point, which is track record. I have zero doubt that if Mike Clevenger is fully healthy and on the mound, that he will put up very good numbers. He's given us nearly 500 innings of ace numbers since 2017. Now, I doubt that the Padres are going to run him out there to eat 200 innings like you know Cleveland did with him in 2018, but I don't think that they're going to baby him to the point of vastly taking away from his per-start contributions. Um, so maybe they don't let him go 32 starts but I don't think that they're going to take him out at five innings on the dot every start throughout the year. So maybe they just limit the number of starts as opposed to the amount of pitches thrown per start. All that. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't hate Mike Clevenger. I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> like he's yeah. one of my favorite late round targets this year. This just feels like the line is set kind of at his ceiling rather than what could be the, the median outcome. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. All of that that I mentioned, combined with the fact that he is on one of the best teams in baseball, you know, with the San Diego Padres, that leads me to believe that 
he will be a top 24 starting pitcher on a per start basis this season. Um, I think the, the important distinction is per start. You could really go either way with that. Maybe the Padres want to get more out of him in terms of the calendar year, so they only pitch him five innings every time. I kind of approached it more like, I don't really think that they're going to baby him in each start, but maybe they you know, throw a phantom IL stint in the middle of the season to kind of keep his innings down <laughs> overall. But that'll be an interesting one to watch play out. It'll be even more interesting because he's available in the, the keeper expansion draft. Number three, Joe Adele will become a fixture, a.k.a. a regular starter, in points league fantasy lineups this season. Jake, is this an overreaction or not? Uh, I, don't, I do not think this is an overreaction. As we as a fantasy community kind of have a bad habit of penalizing young players who come up at a very young age and don't succeed immediately. Uh, I know I've talked about this before because this is just something that I've we, I, I feel like we've always done where if a player is so good that he comes up earlier than you would think he comes up at a young age, but he's not good right away. We kind of push him to the side and annoy him a failure before he really ever gets going and not really look at the fact that, Hey, this is a 20 year old that made it to the major leagues. Maybe he has not fully developed yet, but in Joe Dell's case, uh, he cut his strikeout rate from 41.7% to 22.9% in the limited sample last year. That's a huge deal in points leagues. We strikeouts and strikeouts to walks is probably the biggest thing that can provide a, a player a stable floor. And while he's not going to walk a whole lot, uh, the strikeouts should stay under control. I'm thinking that he'll probably have like a sub 25% mark. I think he'll be, oh, I think he could, he could finish within that. And that's probably where he needs to be to be a stable starter. Uh, he also flashed some power in the minors. He had a 38 home run pace last year. He's also very fast, so he's going to take some extra bases. Uh, he's also only 22 years old, which for context, uh, that's the same age as Spencer Torkelson and Jared Klinick. So he's still very young, even though he's been, it seems like we might have Joe Adele fatigue since we've been talking about him for a few years. But I, I am high on Joe Adele this season. I think that he could definitely be a, a regular starter in this league. We didn't really do any favors by comparing his age to Jared Kalenic because he's he stunk last year. <laughs> <laughs> but granted, they're both very young. Um, once again, Jake, I'm going to disagree with you. I'm going to call this an overreaction, um, specifically on the notion of being a starter in points league format. I've been seeing a lot of hype for Joe Adele as a post-hype breakout candidate lately. And for those that aren't familiar with the term post-hype, uh, usually it means a former top prospect in baseball who has disappointed thus far in their major league career, um, but they still carry the skills, or at least they, are, they appear to carry the skills and the tools to break out. Um, as far as past examples of post-hype breakouts that have actually happened, Think most recently Austin Riley and Byron Buxton. Um, but back to Joe Adele, the problem that I have with Adele is that he was kind of always rated so highly on prospect lists for being quote unquote toolsy. That was the term that was used for you know his skill set or his talent a lot. To me, that's a term given to kind of these super athletes who haven't really ever shown the ability to put that athletic that athleticism together 
um, in terms of translating it to elite results at the plate. Another issue that I have with Joe Adele is that he strikes out a lot. His biggest backers, and it's so funny that you mentioned you're hoping for a strikeout rate below 25%. I wrote, his biggest backers are hoping for a 25% or better strikeout rate, which is not a good mark for points leagues. Like, Sure, it won't kill you if you're producing, but it's, it is by no stretch of the imagination a good strikeout rate for points leagues. He's probably a better breakout candidate in roto or categories leagues due to the power speed potential, but I just don't really see him as being a consistent starter in points format unless he takes a similar path to success as a guy like Luis Robert who just produces nonstop to kind of offset the high amount of strikeouts that you would expect from a player of that school that skill set. Yeah, I think you mentioned the kind of the the limits of what he's going to be able to get away with because he's probably not going to run a walk rate over 10%. But you're probably looking at like 8%. And for a player of Joe Adele's skill set, you probably with the only the 8% walk rate probably can't run a strikeout rate too much higher than 25% and still be and still be considered a regular starter for our league. Right. You're basically painting the best case scenario plate discipline for Joe Adele being for every walk that he takes, he's striking out three times at minimum. That's like he can, if he, if he can get on base, uh, hit for as much power, steal as many bases as a guy like Luis Robert, who I just mentioned, um, that doesn't really matter that he strikes out so much. But again, for him to, I know I set the line at starter. So I don't want to raise or move the goalposts too much here. But if we're talking about like a difference-making starter, such as Luis Robert, he has to be like one of the most exciting talents in the game because that's pretty much what it's taken for Luis Robert to be drafted so highly in points format. And even then, he's only like, you know, in redraft format, he's probably only like a late second, early third round player. Like he's not going to ever get to that first round caliber of talent in points format just because of the plate discipline. But that's moving the goal. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. <laughs> that's no, moving the I, I understand that. I, I, th- I think you're right there. With the, he's not going to be a difference maker with the, unless the play discipline improves. Which, I mean, he's had a couple. I think his career high walk rate is, if I remember right, is just it's like eleven point something. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, even that's not really that high. But I think he would probably have to be to be able to be a difference maker. He'd probably have to get to that, to that, and I, I don't really, at least not this year. That's probably not a realistic outcome. Mm-hmm. So that's Joe Adele. This next one, I, I think we're actually going to agree on for the first time in this segment, but we'll see. And I'll lead us off with with, with this one. Number four is Phillies hitters and pitchers will prove to be the biggest dichotomy this fantasy season with a top five offense but a bottom five defense overreaction or not. I said that this is not an overreaction. I'm going to keep this one brief. I don't think that this is an overreaction because Bryce Harper, Nick Castellanos, Kyle Schwarber, Reese Hoskins, and JT Realmuto is a star studded lineup. Not to mention they have useful contributors like Gene Segura and Didi Gregorius filling in the cracks. And I haven't even mentioned if Alec Bohm who is a post-type guy himself. We talked about Joe Adele just now, but Alec Bohm is another post-type guy. If he can break out, 
this lineup is going to be really awesome and threaten teams like the Dodgers, the Braves, and the Padres for even maybe a top three spot in terms of offense. But then on the other hand, almost all of these guys, aside from JT Real Muto, are known to be very poor defenders. Um, and that certainly hurts you in the infield, but in the outfield especially, um, like you know, guys like Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos are very poor defenders. That hurts the prospects of like a Zach Wheeler, an Aaron Nola, a Ranger Suarez, a Zach Eflin, who I was a fan of last year. To be honest, the Phillies should still win a lot of games as long as their bullpen isn't as atrocious as it was last year. But I think that all of these pitchers are going to need to be slightly dinged because of how bad the defense is. And obviously that's a very different story from the offense, which we should all be excited about in fantasy. Jake, what do you think? Is uh, is this an overreaction or not to suggest that they'll be top five on offense, but bottom five in supporting their pitchers with good defense? No, this isn't an overreaction at all. The DH will help a little bit, but you can only DH one player. And the Phillies have, as you said, many players who are bad at defense. And uh, they were the worst defensive team last year, and they just added two awful defenders. I guess that's Castellanos is a butcher, but uh, Schwarber's, Schwarber's bad, but he's not. he kind of gets a bad rap. Uh, I don't know how much this really matters for fantasy, though. I mean, it, it will matter. I think we're, I don't know that it will really make a huge difference with Wheeler or Nola because they strike out a lot enough batters that uh, they don't put, they don't give the defense as many chances to hurt them. Maybe this matters a little more for somebody like Ranger Suarez, though, who doesn't have the strikeout numbers of those guys. But even then, I, I like the impact's not going to be huge. Defense really only helps or hurts so much. I, but I do think a good takeaway that we could look at here is uh, might be more so on the in-season research side because one area that defense really matters is with BABIP, which is batting average on balls in play. So if, and that matter, and that matters for a lot of ER, ERA estimators. So if we're looking at a guy like an Aaron Nola, and he's running, he has a high ERA, but his uh, his like XFIP or his FIP is real low, and we think maybe there's a rebound there. We can look and say, well, his BABIP's way really high. However, maybe we can maybe then we can say, hey, well, wait, he has the Phillies awful defense behind him. Maybe we don't really expect that Babbitt to normalize. And so maybe the ERA doesn't come down quite as much as we hope. Even then, that's it's not a huge impact, but I'm just trying to think of a way we could use that in season. That would be how we how I think we should look at it, just in terms of uh the Phillies bad defense and for the Cardinals it's kind of the opposite because they have such a good defense where you could think like a guy like Jack Flaherty had his ERA estimators were so high last year but uh, part of that was his BABIP was really low well he had that Cardinals defense behind him and that was what was helping keep it low those the ERA estimators something that is important to know about them is they don't really they they sort of they will normalize the BABIP but Normalize. They they assume that every team they take defense out of the equation. I guess that's the best way to, to put it. So they're not going to account for the fact that the Cardinals have a really good defense or the Phillies have a really bad defense. They're just going to try to normalize everything, and sometimes that's not quite how you want to look at it. Yeah, and I think a great stat that you're basically speaking to is FIP, which stands for Fielding Independent Pitching. Just doesn't take into account defense. Um, but sometimes that's not necessarily your friend. You do have to, you know, take context into account of, you know, Aaron Nola has a very poor defense behind him. Jack Flaherty has a great defense behind him. 
I'll just use the, the same two examples that you brought up. So, you know, if Aaron Nola has a down season or a down month or a down half of a season, if, if the root cause that you're seeing behind the numbers, like you mentioned, Jake, is a high BAPIP, you don't necessarily bank, put all of your marbles in the basket of, oh, his, his BAPIP has to come down because if the defense is awful, <laughs> you know, it might, it might not come down. Um, and I think another interesting thing to bring up too is guys that use ground balls to get outs a lot. I think Ranger Suarez is pretty, has a pretty high ground ball rate. Zach Wheeler is a guy that we talked about last year who can kind of flip on the switch between being a strikeout pitcher and a ground ball pitcher. Very unique skill set. So I don't think that he'll be too affected, but any ground ball pitcher that is pitching in front of a really bad defense is going to suffer a little bit. Um, their skill set is just not, they're not going to realize the potential of their skill set if ground balls are getting through an infield that should not otherwise get through. So just some interesting things to note, but finally we agree that this one is not an overreaction. That brings us to our last one of the segment. Number five, this is a spicy one. Trevor Bauer is the most extreme risk-reward pick in fantasy this year. Jake, is this an overreaction or not? Uh, yes and no. Jacob deGrom is the actual highest risk-reward pick, in my opinion. Uh, but Bauer's a little bit of a different case, obviously, because we actually don't know if he's going to be pitching or not, whereas we at least know that Jacob deGrom is going to pitch a little bit. Uh, Bauer could really – he could be – We've seen him do it before. He's 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 an SP one basically anytime he's healthy, just based on the volume alone. Uh, we didn't really see we didn't really see a whole lot of the Bauer after the sticky substance ban. He was good afterwards, but sample size was only two starts. Uh, from a roster standpoint, though, I don't know that Bauer is really the optimal guy to stash here. Uh, because he's you basically have to treat him like a minor leaguer who we don't know when he's getting when it, when he's getting the call if at all uh because you, he's not going to be put on the injured list so that means you, he's going to have to sit on your bench and if you since you can't put him on IL you're basically committing to shorten shortening your bench for as long as he's suspended or not playing and we don't have any idea how long that'll be right now and we probably won't know before the draft so you're going to have to be playing, basically playing a game every week where uh, is this the week I'm going to have to cut bait or do I stick with him? And until then, you're going to be shortening your bench. And once the injuries start to pile up and you run out of IL spots, uh, those bench spots become that much more precious. And it's going to, it, obviously, it's, it's going to hurt you the longer you have to go with one less bench spot than you otherwise would have. Okay, uh, so you're going with that this is an overreaction. I mean, I guess I, I it's like it's yes and no because he's other. I think other than he he is a very high risk reward pick. My pick for the highest risk reward pick is Jacob Degrom, just because he he's an impact player like no other. But at the same time, like he had a partially torn UCL last year, so mm. kind of who knows what who kind of knows what shape his elbow is in this year. Okay, but I, I mean, I guess in turn, I guess yeah, he's probably the the highest risk reward pick, just based on he could give you zero or he could give you a lot. I mean, who, even if he's able to come back, like who's to say that the Dodgers will bring him back? They didn't sound like they were going to commit to doing that. 
So it, it, there's a lot of questions. I don't know. I, I'll just be straightforward and say I'm, I'm not planning on drafting Trevor Bauer. I just don't want to deal with the headache. Okay, so you say it's not. We'll we'll say for the purposes of the segment, you say it's not an overreaction to say that he's. The yeah, most yeah. Let's go with that. Okay, I once again disagree with you. I think that this is an overreaction, and this one comes down to a simple question for me: Do you think that Trevor Bauer will pitch again in Major League Baseball? The reason why I suggest that, that is the only consideration that someone needs to make to determine whether. Trevor Bauer is a worthwhile investment is because of the format we play, the keeper format. There's a phrase in business called resetting the market. Without going into too much detail that doesn't really matter, the philosophy basically suggests that one should kind of like job hop at certain points of their career to increase overall earnings potential. In this case, resetting the market um, in Bauer's case, it, it kind of means that he was literally priced out of the market in our keeper format by spending four long, cold, championship-less years on JC's roster. Now, there's a chance to reset his keeper value, reset the market, only because, though, only because of his current situation. I think that he's likely to go outside of the top 50 picks. At least I would hope <laughs> that nobody takes him with a top 50 pick if we don't have any update on him on draft day. He probably should go outside the top 100 picks if that's the case because the decision by Major League Baseball on his punishment isn't going to come out until a week and a half into the season. So any team investing in him for 2022 is drafting a complete wild card. But going back to my original question, Will Trevor Bauer pitch again in Major League Baseball? At a certain point, if you are confident that the answer to that question is yes, you have to consider accepting whatever production you get from him this year as icing on the cake, You know, which the cake would be the ability to keep an ace pitcher when on the mound in future seasons. So since I'm suggesting that calling Bauer the most extreme risk-reward pick in fantasy this year is an overreaction. I will give you an example of somebody who I think is going to get drafted in a similar range to Bauer that I think is more risky, Clayton Kershaw. Figure to be helpful to kind of contextualize. You did it too. You said Jacob Degrom. I thought it would be helpful. Obviously, my example, I guess, is probably a little bit more po- or sorry, a little less potent um, in terms of like the the elite when he's on the mound versus you know he may give you nothing because he might get hurt. I went a similar route, but I, I kind of use Clayton Kershaw as my example. Anything to add, Jake? Yeah, I mean, I, I only went with Degrom just because, in my mind, he's like he, he's the only player that I that I think like when he's out there, he does not have an equal. He's he's the only one when he's out there. He is there's only one of him, and he's giving you like one and a half pitchers production worth of production. With Trevor Bauer, it's not you're not quite there. You're getting an SP one or like probably like a back end SP one, mm-hmm. but he's not like, and that's still extremely valuable. But he's not like he's he's not the top guy. Whereas like Degrom, it's kind of just like the extreme. So in the context of just the question, is he the most extreme risk reward player? That's why I said no because he's not for me. But he is a very extreme risk reward player, and I guess like you're. You're right when you say, like, how much tolerance for risk do you have? Like, I kind of laid out the downside as to why I'm not willing to 
invest in Trevor Bauer just because I don't want to shorten my bench for who knows how long and maybe not have, maybe not ever have him. That's just something that I'm not willing to do, but I mean, I'm, I, I can't really argue with somebody in our league who might want to take that risk. Like I can't really, I can't really argue with them. It's just not something that I'm willing to do myself. Fair enough. Um, the next segment of our episode is bold predictions player edition. I'm going to just quickly uh, jump in with the first question and my answer to it. Which player drafted outside the first three rounds is most likely to return first round value this year? It's Trevor Bauer for me. I am learning from my mistakes of last year. I am not going to try and call my shot with a breakout or a continued breakout on a small sample like I did with Zach Plezak last year. I'm simply going with the man who has the skills to do it and the wherewithal in terms of the ability to provide the necessary volume to get there. If on April 16th, which is the day that Major League Baseball said that they hope to have a decision on his punishment by, comes out and says, hey, we are issuing a 50-game suspension for Trevor Bauer, but we are retroactively applying it to the time that he spent on the administrative leave list like they did for Marcelo Zuna, he'll have missed a total of a week and a half of the 2022 season. And if there's any pitcher who I think would be ready to take the mound in short order, despite not being with the team all this time since last July, it's a nutcase like Trevor Bauer. So he is my pick for player drafted outside the first three rounds who is most likely to return first round value this year. Who's your pick, Jake? Uh, so I did go the Zach, Zach route this time around. Uh, but I do like his skill set more than I liked Zach last year. And the sample size is a, just a smidge larger. I went with Logan Webb. I uh, did it over the second half last year, 96 innings, 271 ERA, 100 strikeouts. Uh, the fly ball rate was, I don't want to say historically small because Framber Valdez was actually smaller, but it was only 18%, which is really absurd. And that's going to help him keep his home run rate down, should help keep his ERA low. Uh, I'm kind of, I'm mostly anti-sinker, but just, I mean, the Pirates have kind of conditioned me to be anti-sinker ball pitcher, but uh, Webb is actually a pretty big sinker guy, but he's, uh, he's got a good sinker, I think is the difference here. And it sort of allows his slider to play well off of it. Uh, slider probably overperformed a little bit last year because that was his big whiff pitch. That's probably going to come down a little bit just on that particular pitch. But uh, the sinker, again, it's going to help elevate its performance. Um, and uh, I think with the slider, if he, he didn't throw it a ton, so if maybe if he threw that a little bit more, he might have a little bit more strikeout upside. That was kind of the one area where I'd say that he lacked just a little bit last year. He was only at about nine for nine. Uh, the Giants let him go six plus, though, which I think is very important in just about every start in the second half. So that combined with his strong ground ball ability, he's able to keep the ball in the yard really well. Uh, that's kind of going to keep his, I think that's going to keep his floor higher. And then also uh, I was, I, I, I was really impressed. I was really impressed with his playoff performance too. I, I know that that's kind of, I normally don't factor that in, but that made the sample size a little larger. And uh he was very good, in two, I believe, two starts against the Dodgers. But, uh, yeah, I know that that's very reminiscent of the Zach, Zach pick from last year. I almost went in a different direction. 
I don't know who I was going to go with, but I was thinking like, oh, I can't pick somebody like this because the police act thing didn't work out. And this is like almost the exact same thing. But I feel strong. I feel a lot more strongly in the skill set here than I did with police acts. So I'm calling it Logan Webb will return value. He's young enough, too, that I think if he does continue the breakout, he is likely to get picked in the first uh, three rounds next year. Okay, so I have a confession to make, Jake. I picked Logan Webb as well. Was starting to do my write-up for Logan Webb. True story. And then I went back to the draft room, and I was like, shoot. I wrote outside the first three rounds for this, and I was thinking this whole time, like, I'm going somebody beyond the first 24 names that appear as available in our draft room. I think this is probably going to end up being you know, miscommunication between us. But I actually counted the amount of names available in the draft room, and Logan Webb is number 33. So Wait, do you, have your, do you have your draft room? What do you have your draft room sorted by? Uh, I was just, worried this was going to be a problem. <laughs> just sorted by... Looks like both rank and ADP. Like I, It's sorted by ADP, or it's sorted by rank, but I think the rank is based on ADP. Uh, the rank is based by based on projected points. That's what the rank is ba- is sorted by, I think. No, because Logan Webb is ranked fifty four. He's projected for thirty less points than Nick Castellanos, right behind him, who is projected for four hundred ten. At least in my huh. draft room. Yeah, I think we're we might we when we were looking at this, we must have been have the players sorted by different things because uh, I Webb was outside the top thirty six. In my draft room, I'm trying to see what it's sorted by. Got it. I mean, it's it's really no big deal. This just highlights the fact that we both really like Logan Webb because he was literally my pick. I literally started doing research and writing up why he was my pick for a player drafted outside the first three rounds, who I think was most likely to return first round value. And then I was like, midway through, I was like, wait, shoot. I didn't count if he's in the top 36 in my draft room or not. And sure enough, he was number 33. Regardless, I'm not going to make you come up with another one on the spot. Logan Webb is an awesome pick. That is who I wanted to talk about when I realized I couldn't talk about him, at least by my parameters that I thought we were, you know, that I thought I was using. I was like, shoot, who do I, who do I pick now? Right. I went with Trevor Bauer as kind of a cop out, but I'm glad that you hit on Logan Webb. So well, now I don't on. feel so good about now I don't feel so good about this pick because why because I picked Zach please Zach because you picked Zach Zach please Zach last year this is like the exact same thing. Well, hey, I, I'm I'm actually pretty like I'm not going to get to pick Logan Webb because I'm not drafting him with one of my first two picks, but he is surely going to go before the end of the seventh round. So I'm I'm not going to get him, but I'm very confident that he is going to be a very good pitcher this year. Like I. This is getting a little crazy, but I think that we could see a Corbin Burns-like breakout where he is, uh, you know, like top five in Cy Young voting this year. We'll see. I guess I guess I could see like the results and in the award being the same, but their paths to get there are going to be have, have to be very different. They're very different pitchers. Yeah, I mean, Corbin Burns is he uses the cutter. You mentioned Logan Webb is a sinker pitcher. Yes. Different types of pitchers, but I just mean that I I think that they're both like Corbin Burns. I think is 27 now. Logan Webb is 25. I think that the timeline of the breakouts are going to align. I mean, he broke out last year, but I'm talking about busting down the door type breakout. 
don't yeah, want to I mean, give anybody too it. much confidence. I don't want somebody taking him with like the eighth pick, like we saw Plezak go in the top twenty last year. <laughs> yeah, I guess I should clarify. I don't think that. I'm trying to think of like a comp who I could use as his ceiling pick, but like I don't think that Webb has the strikeout upside. Like I, there's a pass to maybe a little bit more, but he he's not. He doesn't profile as someone who's going to have really really high. Think like. I think like Scher, Max Scherzer or um, I don't know why I'm blanking on another pitcher, but <laughs> think of like, I, he's not going to have like the, the top ace level strikeout upside. Like that's just not his profile, but he, he should be able to run a very low ERA and probably a pretty low whip. And he's going to give you a lot of innings. That's probably like what his ceiling is. I guess maybe like think Walker Bueller last year where his strikeouts kind of took a dip, but he gave you a ton of volume with really low ratios. That's what I think that Webb's ultimate ceiling would be. I mean, Walker Bueller was a first round talent last year, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, I guess that's, <laughs> I guess I just contradicted myself, but I guess that's, I, I, I think that that's just, probably, are you just mostly comparing skill set as opposed to like literal point outcomes? Well, I mean, Bueller and Webb like aren't the same pitcher at all either. I'm just, I'm, I guess, I'm comparing like, I'm guess I'm comparing outcomes. I'm thinking like he's not going to be Walker Bueller last year. Kind of got, kind of got by with he gave you a lot of volume and the lower ratios, whereas his strikeouts actually took a pretty big step back. Um, I, I don't think that whereas someone like Corbin Burns was just overpowering, racking up tons of strikeouts every game. Like, I don't think Webb's going to be that pitcher where he's going to give you a lot of strikeouts every time out because that's just not what he profiles as. But I do think that he, he could give, he's going to give you a ton of volume and he's going to give you low ratios. Okay. I, anybody that would draft him would be happy with that. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. We actually might have, uh, for real, the same pick as an answer to this next question. Um, kind of faked you out with me saying I, I was going to pick Logan Webb, didn't actually. This time, uh, based on something that you said earlier, Jake, I just have a, I have a feeling. The question is, which player drafted inside the first two rounds is most likely to finish outside the top 100 players this year? This is going uh, to... I might be swinging and missing here, Jake, but I'm confident enough to say, tell me why Jacob deGrom is your pick for this question. Well, he was he was going to be my pick, but I figured like he's probably going to be. I mean, obviously, the thing with Degrom is like is his elbow actually functional? Because we were told that he had a partially torn UCL last year, which is a precursor to Tommy John surgery. But I guess he, that, that he just, never came back. No, he didn't, and it just I guess healed over the over the winter or that's what we, <laughs> yeah, like, we were led to believe you ever watched um avatar the last airbender not really no okay well, for anybody who has they have a waterbender on the show that can heal people you you mentioning winter the waterbenders live in the south pole that's where my mind went he never mind well, keep going it may be, keep going because <laughs> apparently he's healthy now I guess. I mean, yeah. he looks fine, and the spring training starts like he's 
blowing people away like we normally see. But I actually went with a different pick here just to talk about somebody else, just because I thought that talking about Jacob Stewart, Jacob DeGrom's elbow was pretty uninteresting since that's all that it hinges on. Like when he's on the field, he's going to be the best player and the most impactful player in our fantasy league. When he's, he's, he's Christian McCaffrey. When he's on, he's in a tier of his own, but when he, but there's this big injury risk. It depends on your risk tolerance. But anyways, my other pick was uh, Robbie Ray. And uh, I, I felt like this was also kind of an easy one because if the control goes, uh, we've already seen what can happen there. But let me say, though, I buy the changes that Robbie Ray made. I think he's going to be very good this year. He's ranked inside my top 10 pitchers for this year. I, I buy the changes. But I also can't kind of can't ignore that he has this enormous downside that the other pitchers around him don't have. Whereas we've seen Robbie Ray in the past where if the control goes, he's completely useless. Basically, last year, Robbie Ray just changed his approach. And it, it sounds really simple. Like, it sounds like this is so simple. How could this possibly how why wasn't he doing this in the first place? Like it's but anyways. Basically, he changed his approach, started throwing fastballs and sliders right over the plate and just trusted his stuff to get whiffs, whereas in the past he was kind of a nibbler and that led to a lot of walks. Uh, The sample size, though, is kind of what sells it for me, which is he was basically he basically made this change in the beginning of the season and it lasted throughout the entire season. Uh, Even with this, though, there are a little bit there's some there's some warning signs like kind of the really bad track record. Uh, it's really not out of the question to think that the control could kind of just disappear like it has been his entire career. His walks were career low, whereas he, and, and they were significantly lower than his career mark, not even just his uh, his mark from last year or for two years ago. He probably got a little lucky in the, in the ERA department. He also had a 90% left on base rate and a really low BABIP which are two marks that probably will go in the wrong directions. Just you would, you would kind of expect those not to repeat. Uh, I guess the reason I went with Ray, besides not wanting to talk about Jacob deGrom's elbow, uh, he, unlike some of the pitchers around him, at least in my opinion, Ray does have true bottom-out potential where he could be somebody that you actually cut over the summer. Not a lot of other players in the top 24 have that same downside. So that's why I did want to talk about him other than DeGrom's elbow. But you were right. that was, DeGrom was my first choice. I just didn't think that was like it's kind of a simple case with him. We went opposites here. I was going to pick Logan Webb for the first question. Didn't end up doing it. You were going to pick Jacob DeGrom for the second question. Didn't end up doing it. I'm going to play a little devil's advocate, though, Jake. You're talking about the reigning AL Cy Young who won that Cy Young pitching in probably the toughest division to pitch in in baseball in what is a neutral at worst hitters park and has since gone to a much better division to pitch in and I believe a better park in terms of its friendliness to pitchers. This is the guy. You're you're absolutely right. I, I was just speaking to his downside. Like I, this is kind of what I did with Kershaw last year, but it was kind of, it was for a different reason. Mm-hmm. Kershaw, I said it last year, he'd never been bad. It was just there was that he just had the one flaw that really could make really could have him finishing very low, which was the back injury. And this is two, this is totally different. I buy 
I completely buy the changes Robbie Ray made. Like I said, I think he's my I think he's my ninth ranked starting pitcher. So I have him very high. Uh, obviously, that I should preface that by saying that's before keepers are put out or mm. taken out of the board. But like, I, I have him ranked very high. I totally believe in what he's done. I completely believe the changes. I think he's going to be very, very good this year. But I, I, I guess this pick is more about just acknowledging the downside. When I look at the rest of the board, at least in the top 24, I don't see any other players really that have the same downside that he does where you could actually potentially cut him over the summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's... I don't see that with a lot of other players. That's why I'm that's, that's why I was I wanted to touch on him. But like I said, I completely agree with everything you said in opposition to what I, what I was saying. Completely I just want, I just wanted to play devil's advocate, make you defend your position a little bit. I actually think he's not in the top 24 of the draft room, so I couldn't pick him, but I think an interesting case study will be, Robbie Ray and Kevin Gosman virtually switching places, like switching situations. Um, Kevin Gosman going from probably the best pitching scenario last year playing with the Giants to Toronto this year. Robbie Ray doing the opposite, leaving Toronto, going to a pretty good pitching scenario with the Seattle Mariners. I think that's going to be two interesting switches to watch because if Kevin Gosman was in the top 24, which he's not, I might have considered putting, you know, making him the answer to this question for my choice. He's not. So I'm just going to move on. I don't want to really drive his value down. Not, it's not necessarily the point of what I'm saying. I'll keep it brief. My pick is Jake DeGrom. I have nothing negative to say about Jacob DeGrom's skill set. He's the number one pitcher in baseball on a per start basis. My logic is that for any top 24 player to plummet to a sub top 100 finish, they basically have to get injured for that to happen. And of all players available to select, I'm most skeptical of DeGrom's health. I think he could go down at any moment and need Tommy John surgery. Although, you know, of course I have to say that would be awful for baseball. He is, it's, it's really fun baseball. There's just like an extra, when the game's best players are playing on the field, there's just an extra buzz to the daily news that you get from being a fan of the game. So I hope he doesn't get hurt, um, but I think he's the logical choice here. Yeah, okay. I, I was looking at the, I, I will say like every, with every healthy spring training inning, DeGrom pitches, I just like stare at my rankings and I'm like, should I move him up? He's just so good. And, and then <laughs> I like, actually, stop myself from doing it every time. He actually came out and said that he is going to throw the ball softer this year to try to preserve the elbow health now you could take that one of two ways you could take that as oh that's great he's uh you know noticeably trying to prevent injury then you could also take that as e yikes like he has to throw softer so that he doesn't blow his elbow out like i i don't know if i want to be involved in that with my first round pick because he's going to get taken in the first round yeah like I look at him and I'm like every single inning that he throws, like you're just watching him during spring training. He looks fine. And he's just you're you just look at him and he's like, he's a cut above everybody else. He, I don't know. I have to like I I'm, and then you start like the wheels are turning. Like he said he's gonna opt out. That means he's probably fine. That he looks really good. And it's like a daily battle to try to, to not move him up. <laughs> yeah. But I'm trying to stay stronger here. 
Okay, these are going to be two quick-hitting uh, requests that I make of you, Jake, and I'll, I'll pitch in myself as well. Make one unrelated bold prediction for a hitter. All right, my bold prediction, Joey Votto will be a top three first baseman hitting 270 with over 40 home runs and 190 runs plus RBIs. Okay, I have a very similar prediction, uh, which is pretty funny. Not as detailed. Josh Bell will finish as a top five first baseman this season. I'm going to turn around and give you my bold prediction for a hitter, or sorry, for a pitcher. Pablo Lopez will score more points than teammate Sandy Alcantara this season. Jake, what are you going to go hating on Sandy like that? Yeah, I mean, he's on my team. I feel like I have... I feel, like yeah, it's I, okay for me. I feel like it's okay for me to hate him if, if he's on. I don't hate him. I, I actually love Pablo Lopez. This is more about Pablo Lopez love than Sandy Alcantara hate. What is your gotcha. bold prediction my, for a pitcher? My bold prediction is, I, well, I do want to give my, my other bold prediction that I sort of backed off of. Originally, I was going to say Michael Kopech will be the best White Sox starter this year, but I felt more strongly about this one. Aroldis Chapman will finish with an ERA over four. And will not top 15 saves. Yeah, I think I agree with that, even though that's bold. I feel like the it's just been waiting to fall apart. Like somebody's been putting two by four pieces of wood to hold up this massive Jenga Tower house that is a Roldis Chapman for a few years now. And I feel like it's bound to come crashing down. Yeah, I, mean, I, I had like I, I had other stats here if you wanted to hear some of them. I I, oh, I put yeah, yeah I, I put some I put some stats with my bold predictions. I don't know if I'd have to I'd have to defend my position at all. But no, just just the Robbie Ray pick. I won't make you defend <laughs> anything else. But you're welcome to throw them out. Yeah, I, I was just I mean I'm basically I'm just worried about the walk the walk rate really spiked last year. He gave up a lot of hard contact. Uh, I think that boom, Aaron, this, this kind of, I, maybe this is me reading into it so much kind of or too much, but uh, Aaron Boone said earlier that he is said earlier this, I think it was this week that he said that he's going to, he's entertaining the idea of using Chapman more in the eighth inning to keep him sharp during periods where like he's, he's, I think he used the example, like six five to six day periods where uh, he's, he might not have a safe chance and might not otherwise be used. The problem with this line of thinking to me is that you really never know that you're in the midst of like seven straight games out of save until you've reached the end of that stretch. So if you're used, so that to me says that maybe he's going to be used in less saves chances to begin with, because if he pitches like they, they might think that they're in the midst of a seven game stretch without a save when, and they use him one night and then the next night they have a safe chance and they can't use him. So that that line of thinking, Aaron Boone doesn't seem like he's a very good manager to me, but that's just an outside perspective. I also think he's going to be kind of coaching for his job this year. So if, if Chapman stumbles early, there's no shortage of arms in that bullpen that he can use. Uh, Chad Green, Jonathan Loisica, even an ex-pirate Clay Holmes. Could, they could all be put into the closer role at any point if Chapman stumbles. And I, I think that Boone's probably at the point where he needs to win. And I don't know that for him to be to stick around that he can afford to have uh, the loyalty to Chapman that he's shown in the past if he starts if he stumbles early. 
Well, there you go. Roldis Chapman. Uh, avoid him this year. Be warned. Jake gave you a pretty solid argument for why. So for our news and notes segment, uh, we are going to run through the major free agent signings as well as major trades. Jake, you can tell me if you love or if you hate the landing spots for each one of these quick-hitting thoughts. Freddie Freeman to the Dodgers. Love it. Trevor Story to the Red Sox. Eh. Carlos Correa to the Twins. I don't care about that one. (laughs) Nick Castellanos to the Phillies. Love it. Kyle Schwarber to the Phillies. I love it more. Javier Baez to the Tigers. I don't like that one so much. (laughs) Eduardo Rodriguez to the Tigers. Love it. Chris Bryant to the Rockies. Your boy. Only reason I'm keeping him. (laughs) Carlos Rodon to the Giants. I love that one a lot. Kevin Gosman to the Blue Jays. Not so much. Robbie Ray to the Mariners, back-to-back. Yes, I love that one. Marcus Semien to the Texas Rangers. No, hate that. Corey Seager to the Texas Rangers. I I will love anything that Corey Seager does. (laughs) Kenley Jansen to the Atlanta Braves. Sure, that's okay. Jorge Soler to the Marlins. That's that's fine. Anthony Rizzo to the Yankees. I don't care about Anthony Rizzo anymore. <laughs> that was my guy for like five years. Zach Greinke to the Kansas City Royals where it started. I'm pretty close to not caring about Zach Greinke anymore either. <laughs> Eddie Rosario to the Braves. I don't think I've ever cared about Eddie Rosario. Here's a fun one, Jake. Seiya Suzuki to the Chicago Cubs. I guess that's okay. I don't know. Nelly Cruz to the Nationals, giving some protection to Juan Soto. I still haven't figured out why, but I guess this is fine. Trade bait, I guess, at the deadline. Marcus Stroman to the Cubs. Uh, Don't love that. Clayton Kershaw back with the Dodgers. I do like that. And then any guesses as to where Michael Conforto is going to sign? That's kind of the last pin to drop. I don't have any idea. I can't believe that the that this fool didn't take the qualifying offer. Yeah, I think a lot of people are speculating Toronto because they need a lefty bat, but uh, I guess there's speculation out there that Conforto is not vaccinated and you can't. That would be a problem playing yeah, you, in Toronto. You can't play in Canada if you're not vaccinated. So maybe that's why he's not signed yet. Uh, major trades. This is a much shorter list. Matt Olson of the Braves. Love that a lot. Yeah, I think that's my favorite landing spot of this entire list in the segment here. Matt Chapman to the Blue Jays. I do like that. Luke Voigt to the Padres. Luke Voigt is free. You got to love it. Yep. Jesse Winker to the Mariners. Don't like that. Sonny Gray to the Twins. I guess I like that. And then last but not least, Chris Bassett to the Mets. He's probably going to get hurt now, so probably a negative, but <laughs> like, you can't really predict that, so I guess it's okay. Yeah, there were other trades and signings, of course, but I was just trying to go with names that are difference makers. Okay, uh, next point in news and notes. Zach Wheeler, Luis Castillo, and Zach Gallen are all behind schedule due to shoulder soreness, although all seem like they will only miss one or two turns through the rotation at most. 
Um, obviously, Zach Wheeler is being kept by Courtney. But Jake, does this kind of news turn you away from ace pitchers or does your mind tend to go the other way and make you more likely to invest at a likely discount? I don't know how likely the discount would be. A Wheeler, I'm not really concerned about at all. Castillo, I've never really liked this offseason. I, I think I have him. I have him a lot, probably a lot lower than most people do. So I don't, I don't think I was going to get him anyways. I'm always, I've always been a big fan of Zach Callen, but it really kind of hurts my heart because he was also one that had the weird UCL issue last year. Mm-hmm. But he has and, magical uh, healing powers for real. I know. I, I, I can't forget about his Wolverine powers, but uh, it, it really, it really hurt to to have to rank him. I think as low as I did, just because I, I don't. He's had a couple of health problems. Now he's the now he's the shoulder. It's at some point it gets to be a little too much. Mm-hmm. So I I have those guys a little lower. I mean, if Wheeler was there, I would have taken a discount. Not that I would have gotten him anyways, but I guess I'm thinking more in a redraft sense. I would have gotten. A, I would take the discount gladly yeah. on Wheeler. I am steering clear of Castillo and Gallon, but obviously that depends on how far they drop because at some point they'll be a value. It's just they'll probably somebody will probably see them as a value and take them sooner than I will. Yeah, I was not happy to see the shoulder bursitis issue for Zach Gallon as a dynasty shareholder. Was not happy about that. Um, anyway, the last piece of news is probably one of the biggest pieces of the offseason that we haven't actually talked about one time yet. Fernando Tatis Jr. broke his wrist and had to get surgery that's going to keep him out until around June. Jake, do you think that once he comes back, he is going to be a top five player in fantasy through the end of the year after he debuts? Or do you think that the wrist injury, which is kind of known for its lingering effect on hitters and sapping their power, will temper your 2022 on-field expectations for Tatis? Yeah, I'm going to play it conservatively and say that he's not going to finish top five, maybe not even as a top 10 player, just because, you know, the wrist injury is not what you like to see for a hitter. And that does really sap your power. That's like you said, that's known to be the case. Uh, it happened with Nolan Arenado, I think in 2020. I want to say, I want to say that was 2020. I don't know. And, I, and it, it, there's been a lot of cases where, Cabrian Hayes last year, big time. Cabrian, yeah, Cabrian Hayes. It being a top five player is a high bar clear, and I think you pretty much have to be fully healthy to do it. I don't know that we've we've had a. Uh, I don't think we've ever had a top five player who's uh, not been playing at hundred percent. So, yeah, I'm going to say no. To be clear, and I think that you were answering this with this understanding, but top five from the day that he starts playing again through the end of the season, just that time. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But I, I think that's what you're getting at anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very unhappy with that as a Tatis dynasty shareholder. But you know I guess what's up with him. He like hates surgery or something. Yeah. Why Dude, he should have just gotten the, he should have just gotten the shoulder surgery while he was getting wrist surgery. Get healthy, man. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, This is the moment that you guys did not know that you've all been waiting for, but this is an exciting portion of the podcast. The very last uh, segment that we have for you in this opening season debut podcast, it is the Keeper Expansion Draft Order. Jake, I'm going to hand it off to you to draw our live order. Okay, I'm going to share my... You've disabled participant screen sharing. 
Oh, I can, I can, I can make it. I can. Okay, I just, I wanted a witness. Listen, advanced sharing option, but I think she went to bed. So all participants. Uh, Boom. Okay, I think you should be able to share screens now. Yeah. Okay. We're doing this live, folks. Yeah, and they probably will know that this is what they're they're looking for because I was going to send a text to uh, ah ah to just okay. to, um, to just well, alert them. You will know. All right. So this is what you've been waiting for. Yeah. Okay. So we have everybody in the uh, just a, basically just a random draft order uh, generator. I have everybody in there once. I'm double checking right now. Yes, I, I, I can do. verify. I can verify. Okay. All right, so I'm just gonna just gonna generate a draft order, and then this will be how we do it. So here we go. Here we go. The draft order is with the first with the, with the first pick. It is Jordan. Number two is Sam. Number three is me. Number four is Jerwin. Number five is Brendan. Number six is Scott. Number seven, JC. Number eight, Courtney. Number nine, Nate. Number 10, Mike. Number 11, Nick. And number 12, Eddie. That is our draft order. And I'm realizing now I probably should have done that in reverse order for uh, dramatic effect. So that's my bad. All right, let's cut. Let's just re- let's just re-roll it. <laughs> <laughs> I am not happy about that. Oh. All right. Well, we can deal with that. We can deal with that. Congrats to Jordan. Congrats to Sam for pulling the number one pick in our regular draft and the number two pick in the expansion draft. That is that is big. Uh, congrats to Jake for pulling the number two pick in the regular draft and the number three pick in the expansion draft. Also big. That is big. Well, there were three names that I was looking at, so I, I will get one of them. I guess screw me, Mike, Nick, and Eddie. Um, there could no, still this be should be fun. On there. This should be fun. This would be fun. We're starting this on Friday at noon. Is that right? Well, we could probably start. If, I don't know, but I guess it depends on when we get this podcast out because we could probably start like basically immediately. I don't think that it haven't. Like, the sooner we get done, it's not a big deal to me. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so basically, as soon as the podcast comes out, we'll get started with this. Um, if it's not out by Thursday night, I'll send out this text. I'll send out a text with the draft order and we can start it on Friday. Sounds good. Anything else to add for our in closing of our first episode this year, Jake? No, just looking forward to another season of this. Uh, hopefully we can get some guests to sign on. Uh, Please. I did have a, I had a couple of ideas for some uh, not totally serious segments, but uh some fun things that we might be able to do. So let's get some guests on so we can do some of those things. And because it's more, it's more fun. We have more people on always fun to get fresh perspectives. Yeah, definitely. Emphasis on different people. Like I love the, the guys that come on regularly, like Nick, Mike, JC, we'd love to have Jordan and Jerwin. I'd love to have the guys that, don't necessarily talk as much in the group like Brendan. Sam talks a lot, but he doesn't come on the podcast a lot. Love to have him on a lot. You got to get your wife, our two-time champion, Courtney, onto the podcast, Jake. Yeah, I'll try to get her on here. I'll try to get an episode with her on. But should be a fun season in store. Looking forward to it. 
Um, but that wraps up the first episode. Thanks for, for listening, everyone, and hope you enjoyed. But we will be back with you next week with the draft recap. Eert. <laughs>